with me, if you will, to Jonah chapter 3, as we continue through this little book, Jonah chapter 3. <coughs> I finally admit, admitted to myself recently that um, I love preaching through the narratives of the Bible, the stories in the Bible, uh, way more than I enjoy preaching through the epistles. That's kind of strange in a way because Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament <clears throat> provide for us the most clear statement of the faith and the full explanation of the faith and defense of the faith. There we learn most of the classic definitions of uh, God's grace and man's sin and Jesus' work of salvation. So why would I rather preach those same truths from the stories than from the epistles? Maybe just because I like stories better than lectures, which you probably do too. But more importantly, I think in the narrative accounts, in, in the stories of the Bible, we have those same truths, but we have them lived out. Here we have living examples of the truth, not just statements of the truth. And so this morning we return to the story of Jonah, which is a living example of a lot of truths, and hopefully we can uh, understand what some of those are. Let me read chapter 3, brief chapter, only 10 verses. Let me read it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. <clears throat> Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently upon God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. <clears throat> this is a pretty straightforward story. You can understand it as well as I can as you read it. You don't need me to tell you the story again. But when we look very carefully at the words, and as I've told you before, Jonah is somewhat of a literary a masterpiece of a short story. Words carefully chosen, structure carefully woven. When we look at that carefully, I think we see three truths stand out in this story in chapter 3. Three truths. First is this. God's word exerts God's power. God's word exerts God's power. These days we understand something about power. We study physics. We certainly know how to build things and blow things up. We know about the, the power in a physical world. But when we discuss how to exert power in people's lives, motivating people to action, changing people's behavior, 
pursuing social agendas, political agendas, religious agendas, when we think of exerting power with people, we tend to have put a lot of confidence in our technology and in our technique. But this text shows that God exercises his power with people through his word. God's word exerts God's power. Let me explain how we see that here. This text tells us that Nineveh is a great city. In verse 3, it's called a very important city. We talked about this when we began our study of how important a city this was in the ancient Assyrian Empire. It later became the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Later in verse 3, a phrase is used to impress on us something of its size, where it says that a visit required three days. What it literally says is, it is three days' breadth. The city is three days wide. Now, we don't quite know what to make of that statement. Um, that seems to say it would take three days to walk across the city. But the truth of the matter is, the city was probably, even at its largest, never more than three miles wide. Unless you walk pretty slow, you can make three miles in less than three days. But chapter 4 will tell us later on that it had at least 120,000 people, maybe 120,000 children. So what we probably have here is a Hebrew idiom, one of those expressions that doesn't translate quite literally, but is meaning this was a really big place. It was three days wide. We have those kind of idioms in English, too. If you think about, though, a, a, a man on foot preaching to a city of this size, it's no small thing. It's certainly more than three days' worth of work. The, uh, the, uh, think of how long it would take to walk around through the whole city of Bellingham to tell people even one little thing. The latest census says Bellingham has 75,000 people. Nineveh had 120,000. It's more than three days' work. Nineveh was a great city. But in contrast to the greatness of Nineveh, Jonah's preaching does not have seemed to have been so great. His message was, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Actually, in Hebrew, that's five words. You've heard of the four spiritual laws? Here's five words. That's it. Now, it certainly, admittedly, he could have said more, and we don't have that recorded here. But the writer seems to be intentionally emphasizing the minimalist proclamation he made, the most simple statement of what he had to say. Not great preaching. The Lutheran scholar James Lindbergh comments on this. He said, Jonah is pictured as carrying out his assignment without much enthusiasm, he only begins to go into the city and only goes part way. His preaching in Nineveh does not reflect creativity or imagination and consists of only five words in Hebrew. If Joni's preaching is successful, that success will surely not be credited to his homiletical or rhetorical skills as a prophet. But you see, that's the amazing thing about this text. Jonah was overwhelmingly successful. The people responded immediately. The king made proclamations. The whole city was changed, as we'll see in a minute. So how did this happen? What accounts for the overwhelming success of this prophet? God's word. 
exerts God's power. That's what. Jonah's attitude and skill as a prophet cannot account for the results in Nineveh, nor does the slick salesmanship or the polished style or the academic prowess account for, uh, in our day, for, for lives being changed in the church. God's word exerts God's power. Indeed, that's exactly what the Bible tells us in Isaiah 55. The Lord says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word exercises God's power. Or using another analogy, the Spirit says the same thing in Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's Word acts with power. And that's true, that hasn't changed, folks. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes a, a, a statement, he says... If the message of the law that brought death was glorious, how much more glorious is the message of the gospel that brings life? Now, we could make that same analogy here. If Jonah's message of condemnation and judgment was powerful, how much more powerful is the message of the gospel of Christ? And sure enough, that's exactly what we read in Romans 1, where the apostle says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Make no mistake, God's Word exerts God's power. Now, I know people don't believe this anymore. Half the Christians don't believe this anymore. And so we find ourselves busy in ourselves with political power and, and uh, financial maneuvering and all to try to get things done and ignoring the power of God's Word. But God's Word's just as powerful as it was in Jonah's day if we would but use it. My favorite example of the power of God's Word, I've told you this many times, I'll tell you many more, is Jesus standing in front of Lazarus's tomb. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, has died. He's been buried in this cave-like tomb, and Jesus has come, and he's standing outside weeping, grieving with Mary and Martha. Lazarus' sisters and their friends. And then Jesus suddenly says, well, move that stone out of the way. And they kind of protest. They don't want to deal with the stench of death of a decaying body. But eventually they do move it because Jesus insists. And then Jesus startles everyone. He says, Lazarus, come out of there. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. This is absurd. Has he lost his mind? Lazarus can't hear him. He's dead. And even if he could hear him, he can't move. He's dead. His body doesn't work anymore. But out he comes. Probably hopping out, bound still in the grave clothes. Jesus has to, they're so shocked, Jesus has to unwrap him, let him, let him go free of those things. What's going on here? The same word of Jesus that called Lazarus to come out of there, that same word gave Lazarus life to respond 
the Word of God exerts the power of God. It did with Lazarus, and it did in Jonah's day as well. And folks, that Word has been given to us, God's Word in the Scriptures, the Word of the Gospel. It's powerful. Use it. It will change you. Read it. It, it will bring life to others. Tell them about it. God exerts his power through his word. Which brings us to the second point. God expects us to change. God expects us to change. Nowadays we have a pretty uh, pathetic conception of what we ought to do when we're caught in trouble, when we've done something wrong. We think it would be nice to admit what we did. We don't like people who cover up and try to act like it's none of your business. We think people ought to say, I admit I made a mistake. And beyond that, we understand that we need to be polite, that we ought to say, I'm sorry. But, you know, beyond uh, saying, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, we really don't expect much more. We certainly don't want people to expect much more than that from us. I mean, that's quite a bit to say, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. Oh, but here in Jonah 3, we see quite a radically different response. Here we see repentance. A complete turnaround in attitudes and actions. Here we learn that God expects us to change when his word confronts our sin. Actually, the account of repentance, of the repentance of the people of Nineveh, takes up most of this chapter. The repentance is described in kind of a summary statement in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That's the summary statement. Verses 6 to 9 then explain kind of how this all came down and what exactly happened. We hear here about the uh, king setting the example and the king issuing decrees and what the decree said. And, uh, and, and so we, we get a fuller picture of it as we hear, hear the details. So we put all that together. Here's what we have. We have a repentance that was profound turning around. It was thorough. It included wearing sackcloth and sitting in the dust and crying out to God. It, it was official. The king ordered it. The king did it. And, 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 it, and it went down from the top, the requirement to repent. It was life-changing. The decree didn't just say, say, I'm sorry. The decree said, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Change. Do differently. It was widespread. We read here that they repented from the greatest to the least, from the king to the lowest peasant, both man and beast were called to fast and, 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 and put dust on them in repentance. It was practiced with humility, though. The king did not attempt to make a deal with God. He didn't say, okay, God, I'll buy you off somehow. The king simply, humbly said, repent, because who knows, maybe God will relent and with compassion turn away his anger. That's humility. I have nothing to coerce you, but I will repent in hopes that he might be merciful. Here we learn by example 
the example of the people of Nineveh that God expects us to change when his word confronts our sin. Actually, there may be a clever play on words here. Jonah's message was that in 40 days, Nineveh would be overturned. That's the same word that was used concerning Sodom and Gomorrah that were, when they were overturned or overthrown. Well, in his mercy, God withheld his promise to overturn the city. But in another way, the city was overturned for repentance overturned or upended the city, turning it right side up for a change. Now, we don't know exactly to whom this account was written. It obviously was written sometime after it happened. We don't know who the intended audience was, but it appears that God meant to tell us these things in order to teach us. God, remember, had used the sailors to teach what the fear of God looked like in contrast to Jonah's supposed fear of the Lord. God had used the fish to teach us what obedience looked like in contrast to Jonah's disobedience. And now God uses Nineveh to show us what repentance looks like in contrast with the failure to repent that was Israel's experience in Jonah's day. In contrast to what passes for repentance in our day, You see, in those days, Israel had lots of prophets preaching lots of things, but the people did not repent and follow the Lord. And he finally judged. In contrast, Nineveh had one prophet speaking five words, and the whole city turned around. This is exactly the point made by Jesus in Matthew 12. He said, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. But people were not repenting. You see what they learned, we need to learn. God expects us to change when he sends his word. Well, there's one more glorious truth for us here, and that's our third God gives second chances. God gives second chances. You know, when an artist puts a picture in a frame, it's not just a way of hanging it on the wall. The frame itself becomes part of the art. So this account is put in some kind of a frame. The beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter are the same thing, and in between is this word about God's working and about the repentance of the people. But they all, the the beginning and end of the chapter, put it all in perspective. And what is that perspective? What's that great truth that frames this word from God and the repentance that it brought? It's that God gives second chances. We see it at the beginning of the chapter. Verses 1 and 2, God gives Jonah a second chance, a new start. Notice how God uses the very exact same words with which he called Jonah back in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go up to Nineveh and preach. Those are exactly the same words. Only the name of Jonah's father is left out, and only what he tells him about preaching has changed slightly. But other than that, all the words are identical. It's, it's, this is not an accident. 
the writer wants us to see clearly that here God is giving Jonah a fresh start. God is giving Jonah a second chance. Also notice the lack of condemnation for Jonah here for his previous rebellion. God didn't rub his nose in his disobedience. God didn't say, okay, now I'm going to give you one more chance, Jonah, and I want you to remember what happened. I want you to remember how when you disobeyed me, I hunted you down and you found yourself in the ocean. I want you to remember this. There's no word of that at all. It's just like it never happened. Jonah gets a fresh start. God gives him a second chance. This is also the way the chapter ends. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, that is the people of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. We don't know how many opportunities Nineveh had had to repent. We do do know that by the time this story begins, God's had it with them. God's not talking to them about mercy and grace anymore. Their terrible wickedness has come up as a stench in his nostrils. He's tired of it. His patience has run out with them. He intends to destroy them completely. He only sends Jonah to tell them what's happening to them, not to offer them any, any mercy. But when these people heard God's word, they totally repented. They, they, they were not playing, let's make a deal with God. They had nothing to offer him and they knew it. They were condemned and they knew it. They, their only hope was to turn around and begin to live as they would have lived if God would show them mercy, though they had no, no inkling that he would show them mercy, but we will live as though he will. And God saw that faith and he saw that repentance and he did show mercy God gave Nineveh a second chance. Well, I must tell you, God doesn't always give people a second chance. I think of uh, Esau, how Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. And we read that uh, he never got it back, no matter how many tears he shed. God knows how prone we are to presume upon his grace, to abuse his grace. He does not give us a blank check saying, uh, you can get as many new chances as you want. He does not give us a get-out-of-jail-free card that we can just put in our wallet and do whatever we please and haul it out and, and cash it in whenever we please. No, he doesn't do that. But having said that, the big story of the Bible is all about God's grace. It is all about God giving people a new start. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and they only have expected that they would die instantly when they sinned. But God spared them, and he clothed their nakedness. And he gave them a baby that life might continue to another generation. God gave them a second chance. David sinned as terribly as anyone in the Bible. He committed adultery with another man's wife while the man was out to war serving him as a king. And then he had the man murdered to cover up his adultery. It doesn't get much worse than that. But God showed mercy to David and restored him the joy of his salvation, forgave his sin, and God gave David a second chance. Saul of Tarsus was an expert in the scripture. He was a theologian. He was a man of, of some note. He was a teacher and he hated Jesus. He sought to undo everything Jesus would do. He sought to kill off those who followed Jesus and put him in jail and cause him to suffer. But God saved him and called him to true ministry, proclaiming the very Jesus that he once hated. God gave Saul of Tarsus a second chance and made him the Apostle Paul. 
And Jesus, of course, tells the story of the prodigal son in order to tell us about God's grace. That son dealt with his father treacherously. He went out and squandered all of his father's wealth on, uh, on, on wicked living. But when he came to his senses there in a pig pen, uh, uh, feeding the unclean swine, uh, and, and he realized, you know, my father's hired hands are better off than I am. At least they have something to eat. I, I'm going to turn around and go, going to go back to my father, not as a son, but ask him at least for a job. But Jesus said that his father saw him coming and he ran and embraced him and he restored him as his son. And he threw a welcome home party as if he had never left. So God gives second chances. This is God's word to us this morning. We hear it in the story of Jonah. We see it at the Lord's table in the bread and wine. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, who lived a righteous life and then willingly submitted himself to death on the cross for us. But God raised him from the dead, and he did all of that in order to extend to us his grace and give us a new beginning, a second chance. And now God calls us. He calls you and he pursues you as persistently as he pursued Jonah. Jesus says, it's hard for you to fight me, isn't it? It's hard for you to try to run, isn't it? Come to me, give you rest. And the same word of God that calls you enables you to come. Because God's word exerts God's power. Oh, but when you come, you must understand God means business about this. He has gone to great lengths to save you. He intends to totally disrupt and upend your life, to set it right, to make it different, to change everything. That's what true repentance looks like. God changes us and expects us to be changed. That's the gospel. That's the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the story of Jonah. Lord, at first it sounds like a nice children's story, and then as we think about it as adults, we realize that it's way more troubling than that. That the the things you have to say to us are are very disruptive. They're very profound. They're they're over the top. They, They don't allow us to just sit back and be comfortable and and treat it as if, as if it's nice to know information, Lord, that you call us to yourself in profound terms. So, Lord, do your work in us, I pray. Thank you for the grace that gives us a new beginning. Change us through and through, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.